0: Hello and welcome to the Methode's Bible Study Podcast. Methode's is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methode's encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. Well, hello everyone and good afternoon. Thank you for uh, tuning in to the Thede's Bible Study Podcast. If you're listening to this, it's because our audio did not work on Sunday, and so I'm having to uh, re-record. We're going through a little uh, tiff, I guess you will, with with Facebook. I don't know if it's my account or if it's what's going on, but in any case, we weren't able to live stream, and so there was no audio recorded. Uh, So this will be a re-recording of Sunday's lesson. And we're picking up here with Hebrews chapter five. So when we... When we last met, we discussed the ideas that believers should hold fast to their confession and draw near to God to receive grace and mercy. And so now as we approach chapter 5, we're discovering why believers should hold fast to this confession, and it's because they have a better high priest. And as the chapter goes along, the writer here identifies that high priest as one who is appointed by God and is a Melchizedekian high priest, of course, Christ. So we pick up there in verse verse 1. So there in verse 1, the author begins by explaining the conception of the high priest in the Old Testament. Now, high priests were selected from men and were appointed to represent human beings before God with gifts and sacrifices that atoned for sins. If you'll remember earlier in our study, we spent a lot of time talking about angels and how Christ is superior to the angels and so forth. And so here again, the, the author makes it plain that every high priest is chosen from among men. An angel would not qualify for the office because this office is restricted to human beings, and it's restricted to them because they are chosen to represent fellow human beings before God. So the high priest has a special privilege and responsibility to serve as a mediator between human beings and God. Now, the origins of the high priesthood, of course, come from Exodus chapters 28 and 29, which record the instructions for Aaron and his sons to serve as priests for Israel high priests carry out their office with gifts of thanksgiving and devotion that are offered up to God, and those examples are burn offerings and grain offerings, fellowship offerings, thanks offerings, and so forth. Um, and, and what's curious is there are only two mandatory offerings. Out of all of the offerings that are listed there in the Levitical system, there are only two mandatory ones. Those are sin offerings and guilt offerings. Now, a sin offering is one that is made by a person who had sinned unintentionally or was unclean in order to attain purification. And the other is a guilt offering, and this is made by a person who has deprived another person of their rights or has desecrated something holy. Another thing that, that is interesting and that I pointed out on Sunday is that in many cases, particularly where an animal is concerned, The species is varied according to an individual's economic status. Um, God doesn't ask his people to give beyond what he has blessed them with, but he does expect to receive in return the best that he has blessed them with. And so when we look at this sacrificial system and we oftentimes think that it's unjust or that we think that it's impossible to live up to or, or whatever, we might even think of the story of Cain and Abel and how it is that Cain's offering was rejected by God, but Abel's was not, and that ultimately leads to the first murder. Uh, But it has nothing to do with Abel's offering being more expensive or or anything to that nature. Rather, there it was the heart that it was given with, and and also perhaps, although uh, there might be some speculation here, but also that Cain maybe didn't give God the best of what he had. Maybe it was close to the best, but it wasn't the best. And Abel went to God with a pure heart and with the best that he had, and he made his sacrifice and he made his offering. So in the uh, high priestly system, then high priests also offer sacrifices to atone for sins. And we have uh, discussed already the burnt offering, which atoned for sins, and then, of course, the sin offerings and the guilt offerings. But there's a particular day, the Day of Atonement, when transgressions are particularly atoned for. And on the Day of Atonement, the sins committed during the entire year are forgiven. Now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, we're going to see how it is that these Old Testament sacrifices in the Day of Atonement figure into the, to the writer's understanding of uh, the, the new high priest that's been installed in the person of Christ. But in verse 2 here of Hebrews chapter 5, the solidarity of the high priest with human beings is featured. Uh, The high priest doesn't belong to a different class of humanity. He is able to relate to and he's able to minister to those who are ignorant and led astray since he also has a sin problem. And the verb deal gently there indicates that the priests ideally avoided anger because they themselves were sinners. So you can't get mad at somebody for doing something that you yourself are guilty of doing. Now, we don't want to conflate these two terms, and certainly we don't want to conflate what Christ is versus what an earthly high priest was. The idea of dealing gently and avoiding anger is not entirely synonymous with the idea contained in the word sympathize that comes from chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, there is a notion of helping in that word, sympathize, whereas here the focus is merely on the high priest's identification with the people. Now, the ignorant that is referred to here probably means those who committed sins out of ignorance. And, of course, we've already seen that there is a sin offering, a mandatory sin offering uh, that deals with those unintentional sins. And then the wayward probably refers to those wandering from the things of God. Now, you'll note that defiant sins are not included here. Those sins are equivalent to apostasy, to turning away from God. So, as we talked about in First through Third John, we're getting back to this again. If those are sins that, that characterize you as rebellious, and they're active sins, they're defiant sins, they're particularly going against God, uh, those aren't dealt with here in verse 2. And in fact, he makes clear that there is no such forgiveness for such rebellion. Uh, so if we if we go back and we read there in verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and waywards and see himself as beset with weakness. Now this idea of defiant sins and whether or not they are forgiven, and and so forth, comes from Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 to 31, and Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 12 to 13. But as we continue here with Hebrews, the high priest is able to identify with those who sin because he himself is beset by weakness. And of course, that word weakness there includes the notion of sinfulness. The high priest has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people, uh, as indicated both by this verse and also in chapter 7, verse 27. Uh, So the high priest is able to deal gently and compassionately with sinners because he is a sinner. He shares their same human condition. He is not a special human. He is not a different human. Uh, He is one who shares in the human experience. And, of course, verse 3, as we've already been talking about, verse 3 shows that the weakness of the high priest includes his own sin. And so when we return to this idea of the Day of Atonement, we see that only after Aaron had presented a bull as a sin offering to make atonement for himself and his family, uh, as prescribed by Leviticus chapter 16, verse 6, it was only after that he, he does that that he's then able to proceed with the atoning ritual on the people's behalf. Now, the writer is going to later point out that This is one of the key features which separates Christ's high priesthood from that of the Aaronic line, and that is that Jesus had no need to offer preliminary sacrifice for himself because he was without sin. For Jesus, it's by enduring the common weaknesses and temptations of the human condition that he establishes his power, not by giving in to them, but by resisting them and enduring them experiencing them, but not by giving in or yielding to them. And that power, then, that he establishes gives him that ability to sympathize with his people, but also to bring them help, deliverance, and joy. Now, in verse 4, we're going to get to what, is, what will occupy the majority of our time this afternoon, and and that is this notion that no one chooses to be the high priest. Now, many of you who are listening have probably already recognize that this gets thrown out the window. And the writer here understands this as well. But he continues to say it isn't a democratic office where you put your name forward and it's not an elected office where the people choose the high priest. The high priest is called and chosen by God. Aaron was called and chosen by God and so every high priest since Aaron should be called and chosen by God. But by the New Testament times, Herod and the Roman authorities chose the high priest and made them something of a political pawn. Now, this political move really offends the Jews that are devoted to the Old Testament. Now, they're convinced that the high priest should be in the line of Zadok so that no human being can appoint the high priest. He has to come from the same line. He has to come from the same family in order to um, perpetuate the continuity of this high priestly line that's established in Aaron. So we're going to now go and and shift our attention just a little bit to a history summary of understanding how it is that the high priesthood went from this revered God-appointed office to one that is ultimately uh, turned into a political position by the Romans primarily, although as we're going to see, it happens before the Romans even come into control. So again, the high priesthood is established with Aaron, and passed down to his son Eliezer. And so there are four generations of high priests from the line of Eliezer. But when Eli becomes high priest, then the line shifts to another of Aaron's son, Ithamar. Following Eli, we have four generations of high priests in the line of Ithamar. Now, the last of these in the line of Ithamar is Abiathar. Now, Abiathar was of great service to David during ex- his exile, during the rebellion of Absalom. And so Abiathar ultimately gets to serve as something as a, of a co-high priest alongside Zadok during the reign of King David. Abiathar falls from grace, however, because he attempts to seat Adonai to the throne instead of Solomon, and so Solomon, upon taking the throne, opposes Abiathar. Abiathar is the only high priest to have ever been uh, unseated, if you will, by, well... Let me rephrase that. He is the only high priest in that line to be deposed by uh, the king. With Abiathar's ouster, then, what happens? Zadok uh, takes the sole occupancy of the office of the high priesthood and restores the authority of the line of Eleazar, which is the most direct line back to Aaron. And this is why Orthodox Jews are concerned in in the writer's time and in the New Testament times with uh, Ensuring that the that the uh, high priestly line stays in the line of Zadok because it's really the line of Eleazar, and it does stay in the line of Zadok through the first temple period, through the Babylonian captivity, and into the intertestamental period. Right. And uh, just to unpack, un- excuse me, to unpack some of that, of course. We understand about Babylonian captivity in the first temple period. That intertestamental period is those are those 400 years uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we, as as Christians, tend to read an immediate end in Malachi and a beginning in in uh, Matthew. There's some debate about that. Perhaps it should be an immediate end in Second Chronicles as the Hebrew Bible has the ordering of the Old Testament and then a picking back up in Matthew or Mark, depending on your dating scheme. Uh, At any rate, there are 400 years of silence from God there. And it is during those 400 years that we see the development of um, the rabbinic schools more particularly and uh, interpretations on the Messiah and things of that nature. But it's also when we see the slow but steady corruption of the high priesthood. So, the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persian king Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. And it is under Cyrus and Darius, or Darius, depending on your pronunciation, that Ezra and Nehemiah are allowed to return back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. And Judea remains under Persian rule until 332 BC when Alexander the Great conquers. Alexander the Great dies in 323 BC, and his kingdom is divided among his top generals over a 40 year period. There was some debate when Alexander died as to who the kingdom was supposed to be, or the empire was supposed to be left to, but ultimately it was decided among the generals. However, the division was not a happy divorce, to say the least. And so we end up with the Ptolemaic Empire of Egypt that is through. The Ptolemies that we have Cleopatra, uh, the Seleucid Empire in the east, the Kingdom of Pergamon in Asia Minor, and the Kingdom of Macedon. Now, these four kingdoms were decided at the Battle of Ipsus in 301. That doesn't stop the fighting; uh, they they fight for pretty much their entire existence in order to establish dominance. But eventually, we see that the Seleucids and the Ptolemies take primary control in the region. So the Ptolemies retained control of Judea from 301 BC to 198 BC, uh, though there are five Syrian wars fought between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and they're often focused in this region because it's pretty much a borderland and it's also highly desirable territory. Uh, In 198 BC, Judea falls uh, to Seleucid control under the leadership of Antiochus III. Now, Antiochus III pays a form of reparations to the Jews, and so he gives them money and tribute in order to repair the temple. At the time that Antiochus takes control of Judea in 198, Onias III is high priest, and the high priesthood is still in the line of Zadok. So we have from King David now all the way to 198 B.C., Antiochus III's son, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, eventually takes the throne after becoming a Roman political hostage in 188. Now These people are incredibly corrupt. Uh, His brother, Seleucus IV Philopater, ascends the throne instead of Antiochus, but then Seleucus trades his son with Rome in order to have Antiochus IV Epiphanes returned. Now, by strange happenstance, uh, Seleucus IV is assassinated in September of 175. This is not Antiochus' doing. Uh, this is another upstart guy who thinks he's going to take over the Seleucid Empire. It doesn't end well for him. So Seleucus is assassinated in September, and by November of 175 B.C., Antiochus has returned to Syria to seize the throne because his nephew is still a political prisoner. So when Antiochus gets there, he claims co-regency with Seleucus IV's infant son. And then five years later, he murders that son. So during the reign of Antiochus IV, Jason, the brother of Onias III, offers to pay Antiochus to be installed as high priest, and Antiochus accepts. Now, this isn't the guy that should have the office, but at least we're still in the line of Zadok. However, Jason's rule comes to a quick end when in, seven, in 171 B.C., Menelaus takes the high priesthood from him. Now, 2 Maccabees records Menelaus as a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Josephus, however, records Menelaus as a brother of Onias and Jason. So the question about who the last high priest in the line of Zadok is is up for debate. It's either Jason or Menelaus. In any case, Jason sends Menelaus to Antiochus with money. And along the way, Menelaus adds some money to that, and he approaches Antiochus and bribes him. And so Antiochus installs Menelaus as high priest. While all of this is going on, we get to 170 B.C., and Antiochus makes his first attack on Egypt. It's a fairly successful attack. He gets a political prisoner and he comes back and he stays happy for about two years and he tries to lead a second attack, but he's stopped by a single elderly Roman senator. And this is one of my favorite moments in in intertestamental history because it's it's this one elderly Roman senator alone. He doesn't bring an army with him. He doesn't even bring bodyguards or anything else that that is recorded for us, at least. It's just this old senator, and he gets there, and he sends for Antiochus. Antiochus comes, and he basically threatens Antiochus with the full weight of Rome. At this point, Rome isn't the massive power that we think of Rome to be. Rome is still, in relationship to the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, something of an infant empire. But nonetheless... He threatens Antiochus. Well, Antiochus is for some reason sort of scared by this, and so he says, well, let me go back and talk to my generals. And the elderly senator draws a circle around where Antiochus is standing, and he says, no, you'll give me an answer inside this circle. If you step outside of this circle, you can also face the wrath of Rome. And it works. So Antiochus doesn't attack Egypt this time. However, while he's gone, while all this is happening, a rumor is spreading throughout Judea that he's dead. So the former high priest, Jason, the brother of the current high priest, leads a siege on Jerusalem with some 1,000 men. Now, when word reaches Antiochus, he's humiliated already by what's happened between he and this Roman senator, and this embarrassing, what he views as an embarrassing defeat, so he storms into Jerusalem and all but lays waste to it. But he restores Menelaus as high priest. He's not satisfied that this is going to be enough, though. So he desecrates the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar. He erects a statue of Zeus in the temple, orders the worship of Zeus, and outlaws Judaism. Of course, this is anathema to many Jews, so they refuse. They refuse. And he then sends his army in to utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem. And this leads then to the Maccabean Revolt. Now this is all 168. So by 164, the Maccabees have recaptured the city from Antiochu's armies. And in that same year, Judas Maccabee restores and rededicates the temple, inaugurating what we will call the Second Temple Period, and establishes himself as a de facto high priest. He's never installed, he's never formally given the title, and he's certainly not a Zedekite. But he's not as bad as the other guys because, hey, he got the temple back. So in 162, Alchemist replaces Judas as high priest. After Alchemist takes a delegation to Antioch, which is the Seleucid capital where Antiochus, the fourth epiphany's nephew, has now been installed as king. So this is the one that was traded. For Antiochus now he's back now he's been installed as king how did he get there well he escaped the Romans by way of Syria and then he assassinated Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes' son surprisingly Judas successfully defeats two of the three armies Demetrius the first this is the nephew Demetrius the first son sent but the third army destroys The Maccabean forces, and they killed Judas Maccabee, which leads to the establishment of Alchemist. Now, Alchemist is in the line of Aaron, but he's not of the high priestly line of Zadok. Unfortunately for Alchemist, he dies in 159. He's only been high priest for two years, and as the story goes, he dies while he's pulling down the wall of the temple that divides the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Israelites. Something strangely poetic there. Following his death, then, and several defeats by Jonathan Maccabee, who's the youngest brother of Judas, the Seleucid generals leave the region. And now we have a seven-year gap in the high priesthood. Most sources indicate that it's filled by this mysterious teacher of righteousness. The only other references to the teacher of righteousness that uh, we have on record are from the Qumran community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Do we know if this is the same person? No, we don't. Uh, There is some indication that Jonathan and some others sort of move the high priesthood around among themselves with some infighting and things of that nature, but we, we aren't certain who in the seven-year period is the high priest. It's almost impossible, though, that there wouldn't have been a high priest at all. After that seven years, Jonathan Maccabee emerges as high priest during the rulership of Alexander Balus, who claims to be the son of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So, Baelus challenges the rule of Demetrius I. When this happens, Demetrius I recalls the garrisons in Judea in order to fight this battle that's now going for the throne. In 153, Jonathan declares allegiance to Baelus. Baelus becomes ruler in 150 after the death of Demetrius. Now, Jonathan is captured and killed in 143, and at this point, he's done the most to reestablish, um, Jerusalem. He was regarded as an equal, um, uh, Jerusalem, excuse me, uh, to, to establish Israel as, as a regional power once again. And he's regarded as an equal among these regional powers, including the Seleucids, until their plot to capture and kill him, um, uh, but he's actually allowed to sit at, at sort of regional, if you want to call them conferences, something like the G7 that we've just seen, or, or whatever the case. Uh, marriages and things of that nature would be more likely then. Uh, Jonathan's actually allowed to sit with the regional powers, often in the middle, in the seat of authority. But after his death, his brother Simon becomes the leader of Israel. And Simon really finishes the establishment of Israel as an independent nation and becomes the first priest king of the Hasmonean dynasty. Now, this shift to Hasmonean is not a shift to different people. Somehow, it's a shift to different name. And in 1 Maccabees, chapter 14, verse 41, we see the leadership of the Maccabees of the Hasmoneans as established by decree by the Jewish people. So, we're still doing the wrong thing. You know, as we go back to to Hebrews, and we think about that, we're still doing the wrong thing because it's still being chosen by the people at this point. Maybe it's not as bad because it's not a political pawn at the moment, still a political office, but it's being chosen in a different way. And in some ways you might say that they enjoyed some blessing from this because Israel enjoys full independence for 73 years from 110 to 37 B.C., And in some way or another, the Hasmoneans enjoy dynastic relevance for 103 years. I said this Sunday, and I'll say it again, Queen Elizabeth II has done that almost entirely by herself. But in 37 BC, Herod the Great is installed as king by Rome. Now, Rome has taken power of Judea under Mark Antony, and Octavian, otherwise known as Caesar Augustus. Of course, he is emperor at the birth of Christ, he's also the nephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, and so we begin to see how these pieces of Western history fit into the Israeli story. Interestingly, Rome recognized an independent Jewish state in 139 BC, much earlier than anyone else, probably even including Israel, really. But in 63, there's some civil wars going on, there's some infighting going on, and Rome takes the opportunity, takes advantage of that opportunity. They interfere, and Pompey secures the area for Rome. And, of course, we remember Pompey is the one that Julius Caesar ultimately assassinates in order to become sole emperor. Now, under... Roman leadership, John Hyrcanus II, who is the great grandson of Simon Maccabee, is installed as ethnarch and high priest, but not as king. Caesar appoints Antipater I, the Idumean, as king. Now, or still not quite king there. He's procurator, but we're approaching king at that point. Uh, Antipater was Jewish by birth, but he's of Edomite descent. And the Jews let him know that. He's installed, nonetheless, by Caesar in 48 B.C. And so it's Antipater's son, Herod the Great, who becomes king of the Jews in 40 B.C. And he's gained military control by 37 B.C. And this is the point at which the high priesthood becomes an exclusively political appointment. Just to give you some context for that, Herod the Great marries a Hasmonean daughter, Miriamne, in an attempt to curry favor with the patriotic Jews. Antigonus the Hasmonean, who is the second to last Hasmonean high priest, dies in 37 BC and is replaced by Herod with an who was of Babylonian or Egyptian descent. Now you can imagine how well this went over with the Jews. So Herod ousts him and, re- and replaces him with the last remaining Hasmonean who is coincidentally the brother of Herod's wife, Aristobulus, in 36 B.C. But Aristobulus is too popular with the Patriots, so we go from one extreme to the other. He's far too popular, so Herod has him drowned, and he reinstates the Babylonian or Egyptian Ananolus. Now, following Ananilus, Joshua ben Fabus assumes the high priesthood for seven years, and he's ousted when Herod then appoints his new father-in-law, Simon ben Boethus, who remains high priest for 18 years, and so the story continues with these political appointments. So now that we've established some context and we understand, this is the history that's in the mind of the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Certainly he's aware of that Old Testament context, and he's invoking that Old Testament context, but he's also invoking the history that goes along with it. So when we get to verse 5, Hebrews 5, verse 5. There he says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see in verse 5, despite the history, despite everything that we've just discussed, even Christ, the son of the living God, did not assume the high priestly dignity by his own initiative. He was called to it by God. The same God who acclaimed him as his son in the words here quoted from Psalm chapter two verse seven. Now this quote is familiar to you. We've already seen it in chapter one, verse five. And when we talked about it then and even now, the emphasis is on this word today, because that relates to Christ's heavenly enthronement. It is the day when the Most High gives public notice that the exalted or that the crucified Christ has been exalted as both Lord and Christ. So the God that acclaimed Christ as his son now has acclaimed him also as perpetual high priest. Now verse 6, Jesus' appointment as high priest is confirmed by Psalm 110 verse 4. That's the quotation there where David prophesies that the one who is his Lord is also a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this is the first mention of Melchizedek in the letter. We'll spend more time next week talking about Melchizedek, but what can we say about him here? Well, he's the first. he makes his first appearance in the Bible in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, where Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils won in battle, and Melchizedek blesses him. And then he disappears. We hear nothing else about Melchizedek until we get to Psalm 110, verse 4. And that's the only other Old Testament text that mentions him until here, in Hebrews. And now we're in the New Testament. So what does that mean? Well, at this point, it means that Christ is not only king, but he's priest, albeit of a highly different order than Aaron. Now, as we continue this study, I'll use this phrase order a lot. And what I mean is the nature. He will be of a different nature than Aaron. So God appoints Christ as a Melchizedekian priest. Jesus did not take that honor upon himself. And in verse 7, we see that just as the high priest could identify with human beings, so could Jesus. Because even though Jesus was without sin, he still understands and knows the anguish of human experience. He pleaded with God to deliver him from death, and God answers his prayers because of, as it says, his reverence. Now, if you're reading the English Standard Version, you'll see there that it gives a very literal rendering of the Greek, it says, in the days of his flesh, and that word flesh there denotes the frailty and the weakness that characterizes life on earth. So we go back to some themes that we've talked about already. Jesus shared flesh and blood with other humans and was plagued with heartache and sorrow, just as we are. He offered up prayer and supplications because he was dependent on God like any human being. Now, this, None of this is to diminish Jesus' divinity. But as we've talked about previously, Jesus' divinity is always subjected to his humanity and his earthly ministry. So he prayed with loud cries and tears. It is he experienced the full intensity of grief and sorrow. And where is this more clearly displayed than the prayer at Gethsemane from Matthew chapter twenty six, verses thirty-six to forty-five? In fact, the Greek here is so similar that some interpreters have said that this may actually be what the writer has in mind and what he's attempting to invoke because it matches so well with Matthew's account of the loud cries and tears. If you turn there in your English Standard Version, you're not going to see it translated as loud cries and tears, though the Greek there is very similar. But we also shouldn't suggest that Jesus' experience with grief and sorrow is limited to this one event because it really characterizes his whole earthly walk. He cries over Jerusalem. He cries at the grave when he uh, resurrects Lazarus, or resuscitates Lazarus. Uh, Christ is the only person to have been resurrected. But we continue to see the importance of the Gethsemane reference when the writer says he prayed, quote, to him who was able to save him from death. Now, that's curious, because we don't see... Jesus rescued from death, we see him dying very publicly in the nude on a cross. Now, this might be a regular feature of Jesus' prayer during his earthly ministry. The Gospels tell us that he regularly predicted his death. The disciples didn't always get a hold of that, but he regularly predicts his death. So would it not follow that he often prayed about that and maybe he wanted deliverance from it? And we see then that his prayers for deliverance are actually answered because of his reverence. God answers Jesus' prayers because he is obedient and faithful and submits himself to the desires and demands and to the will of God. So his prayer is answered at the resurrection. That's where we see the deliverance from death because he's delivered from the realm of the dead. When God raises him from the dead, he is rescued once and for all. And this resurrection further shows that Jesus is a priest forever because at the resurrection he was exalted and appointed to rule at God's right hand. But something else we don't think about very often, we see there in verse 8, even as God's son, Jesus learned obedience through his sufferings. As we've already seen, the sonship of Jesus is a major theme in Hebrews. And we shouldn't make the mistake of suggesting that because he learned obedience, that he was formerly disobedient. That's not at all what we're saying. Rather, the human condition is such that when suffering strikes, we do everything that we can to avoid it. Jesus even prays, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But through his sufferings, Jesus learned how to trust God and how to do his will even in the midst of his suffering. And his first aim is not his own pleasure and comfort, but the will of God. The man didn't even have a house. He didn't have a bed to sleep in. He had no earthly comforts in so many ways. But as verse 9 and 10 remind us, and as we've already seen even in chapter 2, it is through the sufferings that he was made perfect. What do we mean by perfect? Fully qualified to be the Savior and high priest of his people. To suffer death for God's sake is itself described as the attainment of perfection. So for our author's understanding, Christ's perfection is twofold. Because by his suffering and death, Christ became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. But also by his suffering and death, he was designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In the letter to the Hebrews, there is a motif of suffering and humiliation followed by exaltation and glory. Now, the author calls this an eternal salvation because it is based on the sacrifice of Christ, once for all accomplished. It's never going to be repeated. It can never be repeated. And it's permanently valid. The salvation which Jesus has procured is granted to all who obey him. And I think it's poetic, and I agree with one commentator who said it this way, salvation, which was made possible by the obedience of the Redeemer, is made accessible by the obedience of the redeemed. Now, we've mentioned Melchizedek again, but as I have said, next week we are going to discuss the importance and significance of Melchizedek's high priestly order and what that means for the author's interpretation of Christ. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, this lesson. I hope it was meaningful and useful to you. I apologize for the live stream business. I'm hopeful that it's not something that will continue and that we'll be back on the air on Sunday. Um, If you have any questions or comments, as always, feel free to reach out, and I'm more than happy to, to answer what I can and to help you where I can. Um, so before we end this afternoon, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have to study your word, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to teach it and for those who are faithful to to listen, Lord. I am thankful as well for your word, Lord, that it never returns void and that we can always rest confident in its power and in your power through it, Lord. I pray now for all of those needs, all of those who are listening under the sound of my voice, Lord, and all of those families represented in our church, that you might be about them and that you might bless them, Lord. I ask that you would forgive us where we have failed you, Lord, and that you would bring to our church and to our church family and, and to the church families again of those who might be listening, Lord, all blessings and and great things, Lord, great things that can be done in your name, and accomplished for your glory and for the progression of your kingdom, Lord. And I pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Mathedas KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.